Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Oh, um, little Johnny is uh, talking to his dad and says, uh, "Hey, Dad, can we uh, can we have a Hanukkah bush this year?" And the dad says, "No. What? What? Why would you want a Hanukkah bush?" And Johnny says, well, you know, all the neighbors have a tree, and they're decorating it with lights, and it looks so awesome in the window. And Dad says, I'm sorry, son, we, we can't, you know. Last time we messed around with a bush that was all lit up, we ended up in the desert for 40 years, so no way. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you for the pity clapping. Uh, this Tuesday evening, of course is the first night of Hanukkah. Very exciting. But what is this holiday really all about? Uh, So I have a picture here to show you, if we can bring that up, of a coin. All right? Does anyone know who this is on the coin? This is Antiochus, Epiphanes. It was issued by him, and it's a picture of him. He was the ruler over the Jewish people during the period when the events of Hanukkah took place. And this is what it reads in Greek. Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the image of God, a bearer of victory. This is a name that he gave himself, Epiphanes. It could also be rendered God made manifest. Okay? These are titles we should be familiar with because they are given to Yeshua the Messiah in the apostolic writings. Yeshua is the invisible image of God. He is the manifestation of God. Yeshua received this title by humbling himself unto death on the tree. But Antiochus, on the other hand, he gave himself this title, and he had these beautiful coins made to commemorate his self-appointed godlike status. And he had a statue of himself made, uh, represented as Zeus, which is the chief Greek god, put in the holy temple. Yeah, boo is right. So how did Antiochus arrive at this position? How did we get here? Through a process known as Hellenization, which is the infiltration of Greek culture, in this case, among the Jews. And this is what we find in 1 Maccabees 1, verses 11 through 15. And I'll tell you a little bit about this book in a second. But here uh, is where the story picks up, if we have it. Thank you. So, in those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go to make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. The proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision, and abandoned the holy covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. Okay? So when you see the word 
gymnasium, we're not talking about, you know, Gold's Gym here, right? As you can see, I'm, I'm very familiar with this kind of gym, the modern kind. Okay, but the ancient Greek gymnasium, thank you, thank you, um, it's, it's much more than that, all right? Their, their gymnasium, it was a cultural and physical conquest of Judaism and of Torah. In other words, Antiochus, he had a plan, a systematic plan of replacing the culture of Torah with Greek culture and elevating himself to the level of God, as we saw on the coin. And it worked, partially. Many of the Jews were persuaded to give up the Torah. Second Maccabees, uh, uh, this is the next book here, it tells us that the gymnasium in Jerusalem, it was built right next to the temple. Okay, and this is a strategic placement. Antiochus set up his own high priest, Jason, who would do what he wanted. Okay, and so in 2 Maccabees 4, 7, 17, this is what we find. This is what Antiochus did. When Seleucus died and Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes, succeeded to the kingdom, Jason, the brother of Onias, obtained the high priesthood by corruption promising the king at an interview 360 talents of silver and from another source of revenue, 80 talents. In addition to this, he promised to pay 150 more if permission were given to establish by his authority a gymnasium and body of youth for it and to enroll the people of Jerusalem as citizens of Antioch. When the king assented and Jason came to office, He had once shifted his compatriots over to the Greek way of life. He set aside the existing royal concessions to the Jews, secured through John, the father of Eupolemus, who went on a mission to establish friendship and alliance with the Romans, and he destroyed the lawful ways of living. That would be the Torah, right? And introduced new customs contrary to the law or the Torah. He took delight in establishing a gymnasium, right under the citadel, and induced the noblest of the young men to wear the Greek hat. This is like Greek culture infiltrating here. There was such an extreme of Hellenization, an increase in the adoption of foreign ways because of the surpassing wickedness of Jason, who was ungodly and no true high priest, that the priests were no longer intent upon their service at the altar. Remember, this is the holy temple. This is the, the center of God's uh, meeting with and dwelling among the people Israel. Yes, it's illegal. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, so where was I? Despising the sanctuary and neglecting the sacrifices, they hurried to take part in the unlawful proceedings in the wrestling arena. It's right around the corner, remember? After the signal for the discus throwing. Ding! They were off disdaining the honors prized by their ancestors and putting the highest value upon Greek forms of prestige. For this reason, heavy disaster overtook them, and those whose ways of life they admired and wished to imitate completely became their enemies and punished them. It is no light thing to show irreverence to the divine laws, a fact that later events will make clear. But this, this is what happens in, in, in the biblical narrative often, right? The, we're... we're the, the Jewish people abandon the Torah, right? And then God's uh, discipline comes to bring them back often through um, a conquering uh, kingdom that is nearby, okay? But we see what's happening here, right? The high priest hears the bell, 
right? And then he, he's off. Imagine if, 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 if I did that, right? There's, a, there's a, the, the kickoff for the big game around the corner, and I hear that. And so instead of preaching the sermon, just head out the door, right? That, would that be good or no good? No good. Okay, you want me to stay? That's good. All right, I appreciate it. So this is, this is really the fundamental human problem that we saw in Genesis. Thank you, Gordon. That's good. Uh, the kingdom of Babel, yet again. It's the erasing of God's moral code, which is the Torah, and the loss of identity for the Jewish people. That goes along with Antiochus exalting himself above God. They all go together. Now, the events of Hanukkah, they're not in the standard biblical canon per se, but they're in these books that I've been describing, First and Second Maccabees. They're not considered inspired, but they are important historically to the Jewish people. And many scholars believe that the events of Hanukkah are actually predicted. Did you know this? And the, the prophecies of Daniel, which is part of the sacred scripture, um, so, uh, I believe that they foretell the events of Hanukkah, and they foretell Antiochus. So the second half of the book of Daniel is full of wild imagery, which, and these represent uh, the kingdoms of the earth against the kingdoms of God. Uh, so there's different kingdoms, and they're represented by different animals. So you have goats, and you have a ram, and you have different things, and they represent kingdoms. And the rulers are represented by horns. This is very common in uh, this kind of literature. So this is what it says in Daniel 8, verses 8 through 12. And don't be scared by the kind of wild imagery because we understand what these things mean, right? Okay, so the male goat, this represents a kingdom, then became extremely strong. But when it was strong, the big horn, that's the, the main ruler of this kingdom, was broken. And in its place arose what appeared to be four horns in the direction of the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew extremely big in the directions of the south and east, in the direction of the glory. It grew so great that it reached the army of heaven. It hurled some of the army and the stars to the ground and trampled on them. Yes, it even considered itself as great as the prince of the army. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Through sin, the army was put in its power, along with the regular burnt offering. It flung truth on the ground as it acted and prospered. Does this remind us of anything that happened after the events of Daniel? Yeah, to me it reminds us of the events of Hanukkah. So in Daniel's vision, the goat, uh, the first goat, is usually taken to mean the Greek and Macedonian Empire, uh, and the leader of that was Alexander the Great, who really fits this well. He was the big horn that was then broken. And then there's another horn that considers itself as great as the Messiah, right? The image of the invisible God, which, who's the prince of the army, we see there. Okay? So this ruler desecrates the sanctuary, which is the temple. He stops the regular sacrifices and offerings, which... Antiochus does. And as we have seen, this fits him very well, just like the coin that we saw. The Zeus statue representing Antiochus is put in the temple, and pigs, <clears throat> pigs are sacrificed on the holy altar, 
and sacrifices to Greek gods are, are made. So this is the degradation that we've come to. And Antiochus did all this. He meant for everyone to bow down to him instead of to the God of Israel. Okay, so we see where we are. Thank you, Gordon. In the overall narrative of Daniel, this evil king represents something, represents uh, a concept called the anti-Messiah or anti-Christ. There's a kingdom set up against the God of Israel, against the Jewish people, and against the Torah. And Antiochus fits this picture of the anti-Messiah very well. This is meant to contrast with the kingdom of the Messiah, which Daniel represents. Remember the story of Daniel? He keeps Torah observance rather than eating the king's non-kosher food, so he maintains his identity as a Jew, right? He refuses to bow down to all of these statues and all of these kings. He only bows to the God of Israel. So Daniel's visions describe this, describe the story of Daniel um, very well. It describes the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is has a king, and the king of that kingdom is the Messiah. So rather than taking authority by violence and forcing others to bow down to him, like Antiochus, the, the Messiah is very different. The Messiah is given authority by God. He's given authority. And this is mentioned in Daniel with a title, and the title is the Son of Man. So let's check out this description of the divine Messiah, the image of the invisible God, referred to as the Son of Man. This is one chapter earlier, Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. This is another vision he saw. I kept watching the night visions when I saw, coming with the clouds of heaven, someone like the Son of Man, which is uh, how Yeshua referred to himself, um, which links to this, to this person. Yeshua was saying, I'm... I'm this guy, okay? He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. To him was given, was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the kingdom of Messiah is eternal. Thank you, Gordon. The kings of the earth, they may try to exalt themselves. They may proclaim themselves to be gods. They may try to destroy the Jewish people. They may try to erode the Torah and the moral code and the devotion to the God of Israel. But, it's a big but, the kingdom of Messiah will always prevail. God is faithful to Israel. His Torah covenant with them cannot be undone. His calling is irrevocable. His love for us is unconditional. The kingdom of the Messiah, which is brought forth in humility, service, and restorative justice, this will stand forever. In Messianic Judaism, we proclaim the eternal relevance of the Torah against these evil kingdoms. We proclaim the eternal preservation of the Jewish people as a unique people. But why is this important? Why is the preservation of the Jewish people through Torah important? Well, I've thought of several reasons, and I want to share them with you. Number one, 
We have them up there too, yes. The Torah was given to the Jewish people for this purpose, to be a distinct holy nation. So he called them out and made them his people and gave them the Torah. For Israel to be a blessing to the nations, which is her ultimate purpose, she has to be a distinct holy nation, right? If you're not, if you're not following Torah, then you can't be a blessing. For God to dwell in his people Israel, God is always seeking to dwell through the temple and then most fully through Yeshua the Messiah. She has to be a distinct holy nation through the Torah. For the mission of the Messiah to restore Israel to God, Israel must be a distinct holy nation. For the Messiah to even exist, to be born within Israel, to be uh, in the line of King David, there has to be a preserved, a distinct Israel, right? In other words, for the Christmas miracle to happen, we had to have the Hanukkah miracle first, right? God had to preserve our people for the Messiah to be born. For there to be unity between Jews and all nations under the King Yeshua, Israel must be a distinct holy nation. You can't have unity if you have uniformity. If there two things are the same, then there's no need for unity. But the very idea of unity means that there's two distinct parts that work together. And finally, seven is the number of completion. So if you have six reasons for something, you should think of another. All right. So this is why we trust in God to prevent us from being wiped out as a people. Most of our festivals are built around this idea. There's even a, a humorous summary of every Jewish festival. Have you heard this? It's, it's uh, they tried to kill us, they failed, so let's eat. All right? And Hanukkah, amen, Hanukkah fits this pattern. But there's a deeper significance here. If God's primary blessing and restoration plan is in the calling of Abraham and his descendants, then what we're doing here in Messianic Judaism and in Tikvot Israel, it's very important. If the Jewish people long to be part of the kingdom of Messiah Yeshua, right, most of the time they lose their identity and their calling in the wider church. Messianic Judaism allows space for the distinction of the Jewish people to remain. As I said in the beginning, keeping with our calling and our covenant from God. Because this is an important part of God's redemptive plan. So, what are the takeaway lessons from the story of Hanukkah? First, we need to trust in the validity and permanence of God's Torah, covenant with Israel. One of the pillars of Messianic Judaism is the continual distinction of the Jewish people as a people. You can't have mutual blessing, which is what we want, without having distinction. Unity is only possible with different parts working together in their own unique calling and identity. God has preserved the Jewish people, and he has preserved the Torah through Antiochus, through Haman, and every evil ruler in history, and all the feasts that we celebrate. So let us validate and thank God for our distinctive identities, for God's purpose of mutual blessing. Amen? Secondly, we need to take a good look at our close relationships. There are two kingdoms at play in, 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 in the Hanukkah story, and there are two kingdoms at play in real life, um, or in modern life. This is, of course, real as well. If we're following the Messiah, our closest relationships should reflect his kingdom. Messiah Yeshua, what did he do? He put others first. He humbled himself, right, even unto death. 
So are, are we doing that, or are we trying to get what we want out of our relationships? Are we thinking of ourselves, or are we thinking of others? Are we trying to get our spouses or friends or children or parents to serve us, or are we seeking to serve them? Are we like little Antiochuses like in our lives? Are we puffed up? Do we want to see a coin with our, our face on it, right? Is it all about us? Or are we reflecting the humility and kindness of the Messiah? There's two, there's two ways to go here, right? The kingdom of the Messiah, if, if we want to sum it up, is sacrificial love, right? Amen? Is this where we want to be heading? And this leads us to the third lesson. So lastly, we need to hold to the moral code and ethic of the Torah and of Yeshua against the surrounding culture, right? So the Jews at this time, they were tempted to adopt Greek values, and we see where this led, amen? As disciples of Yeshua, we may be tempted to adopt the values of the surrounding culture, uh, which is different from the culture of the body of Messiah. We are called, though, to a higher standard, a higher standard of moral holiness as disciples, followers of Yeshua. American culture, what do they value? Getting ahead, right? I see Mary going like this. Money, status, right? Who you are, what you do. Um, Lust, right? Using others to get ahead, right? Greed, excess. There's a lot of excess in American culture. Gossip, you know, not, not thinking about how you talk about other people. And, of course, revenge, right? Getting back at others, Okay, the Torah and Yeshua's fulfillment of that Torah, they teach a whole different paradigm, a whole different set of values. Sexual purity, defending the rights of the poor, valuing people instead of things, valuing others over ourselves, forgiveness, and, of course, trusting God. We should be holy as God is holy. If we are truly followers of Yeshua, we should be set apart. Not in a way that's uh, the expression holier than thou, right? Where we're puffed up, right? But in a way that reflects God's values in a world which does not reflect them. This, of course, is a process, right? But the question is, what direction are we headed toward? Are we headed toward the culture of the world or the values of God? The kingdom of Antiochus or the kingdom of Messiah Yeshua. Amen? So this Hanukkah, let us bless the Lord and thank him as we light the lights for his eternal Torah, for preserving his people Israel, for the humble, self-sacrificing kingdom of Messiah, and for teaching us to be holy and morally upright. Amen? All right. Amen. Avinu, uh, thank you for the lessons um, that you've shown us um, in your history with the Jewish people, um, your history um, in the Tanakh, and your history even in uh, these other books of, of Jewish history. And uh, thank you for your faithfulness. Help us to be morally upright, to, um, to follow you in all of our relationships, Lord, and to to really put others first, to die to ourselves. It's not an easy thing, 
but it's something that you have called us to do so that we can reflect your love because you are a loving God and uh, others will know that you are loving if we are loving and if we reflect your goodness to a hurting world. And in Yeshua's name we pray.